as uh, Evan said, Pastor Bob's in Dallas this week, and um, I remember years back in traveling to Dallas in July and August, and uh, it was then that I came to understand the power of words and meaning in words, uh, and I thought of the word sultry, and I had not understood it until I got into the heat and humidity of Dallas in August, what sultry actually meant. We're going to be taking a look, a look at uh, God's Word this morning and taking it apart, and, and I encourage you to think, what are the deeper meanings in some of these words? But as Evan mentioned, uh, Bob is preaching uh, at their former church. Um, I understand in the South, they allow you to, to preach longer, kind of like you do in Africa, where you start and you may end sometime around dinner. So we're not sure if he's actually done or not, but uh, it's possible. He's also going to be teaching on Tuesday at Dallas Seminary. And this is uh, quite an honor for Bob because he's uh, an alumni of uh, a graduate of Dallas Seminary. And he did his uh, doctoral dissertation here through Western Seminary. And now he's going back to teach on his uh, doctoral uh, thesis. And uh, that's quite an honor for him. And I'm sure... Uh, somewhat unnerving as well, as he's uh, in many ways among the giants there at Dallas Seminary. So we want to keep both Bob and uh, Julie in our prayers. But we know that over the past several weeks, Bob has been leading us through a series in Ephesians on spiritual warfare. And the battles that we find ourselves in are fought on the spiritual battlefield, as Paul clarified for us. You know, we, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and, and powers. Um, and spiritual forces in high places. So we fight, find ourselves in, in battles on the spiritual battlefield every day. And we're fighting those battles minute by minute, one decision at a time. And think about all the decisions you make in a day and how important those decisions are. I mean, we might think that, okay, I can kind of disregard as I'm moving from one thing to another, but really each decision we make is important in how we live our life. And we need to be equipped and ready for every challenge. So Paul instructs us, therefore, to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand or resist in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm or stand fast, in other words, hold your ground. At the end of every day, we want to be standing fast, resisting the evil one. Well, this morning we're going to take a look at Psalm 19 and see how knowing our God through his creation, his word, and his transforming work in our lives equips us to stand fast in the daily battle. If you're uh, using the Pew Bible, you'll find Psalm 19 on page 456. Um, while you're turning there, uh, let me set the stage for you a little bit about the Psalms. If you've sat in my classes, you'll probably have heard me say this multiple times. There are two major perspectives uh, when we approach biblical literature. There's what I call the prophetic perspective, which is God communicating or revealing himself to humanity about his person, his nature, his character, his attributes, his will, um, his purpose, what he's up to. So it's from God to humanity, prophetic perspective. And the, the uh, reciprocal of that would be the uh, wisdom perspective. The wisdom perspective is the response to the revelation of God uh, by man reflected back towards God. So 
from man to God. Prophetic, God to man, wisdom, man to God. And what the Psalms is, as a whole, is part of the wisdom literature in the Bible. And so that means it's the expression, the cry of the human heart back to God in relationship to um, his revelation. And we're going to take a look at Psalm 19 this morning. It, it was written by King David uh, more than 3,000 years ago. So if you do your math and you look at when he reigned, it's over 3,000 years since this was written. It was probably written early in his life. Um, it was intended to be sung as a song or a hymn. Many of the psalms are intended to be put to music um, or sung as you read the psalm. And we need to kind of consider and understand a little bit about who David was and what the background is to this psalm. Remember that David was a shepherd boy who became a warrior king. So he was anointed um, as king long before he actually reigned as king. And that period of formation from even before he was anointed as a shepherd in the field, through the time of serving in Saul's court, through the time that he was on the run before he became uh, the king, were very formative in David's life. And this was probably written during the reign of Saul when David was serving in Saul's court. But David ultimately, as a warrior king, unified the nation of Israel. It became not just a collection of tribes, but became a unified nation. And we use that name still today to describe the unified nation of Israel, although some would debate whether it's really a unified nation at this point. Um, but David was instrumental in advancing the program of God on earth um, through Israel, but he was also a musician, and he wrote many of the Psalms. So he was a very creative, very passionate person. And that's what we're reading today is a Psalm of David, uh, Psalm 19, which was described by C.S. Lewis as the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. So when he said that, he was expressing how much Psalm 19 had impacted his life as he read through that. This psalm combines poetry with profound biblical theology. We can actually come to know God through this. Psalm 19 is divided into three sections. The first section is about how God is revealed in his work of creation. The second section is uh, about how God is revealed in his recorded word. And the third section, as you would expect in wisdom literature, is David's response to God's revelation. So the psalm begins um, with God's revelation of himself in creation. We read, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The heavens declare the glory of God. What is that saying to us? The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens, as described here, is referring to the creation of the universe. The stars, the, everything that we think of as the cosmos, everything that is, 
it is when God spoke into existence everything from nothing. It is the universe. And the heavens declare the glory of God. Declare, that word that you find in the, in the East, um, English Standard Version, um, is a present tense with a continuous force. And I'm not going to go into a bunch of grammar here. But it's an important word because it's telling us something about what that communication to, is, to us is, what that declaration is. That idea of a present tense with continuous force for this word uh, could be uh, an expression of how God upholds his creation. We read in Colossians, and you find it on the back wall there, how everything was created through Christ, and he upholds it. He keeps it um, in motion. He keeps it alive. In fact, without this present uh, continuous aspect of God in creation, we couldn't take our next breath. That's how close God is to us. He's closer to us than our own breath. Not that he is creation, but he upholds it. And that's the force of this word. The heavens declare the glory of God. And another way of phrasing that is, is to use the, the word telling. If you look at the root word here, it actually is kind of an accounting term. So if you want to know the state of your business, you have an accountant do an audit. right? You want to know what's there. It's a telling of what you have. So you could read this verse as the heavens are telling of a glorious God. They're continuing to give us an account of who he is. We read further that the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This is a reference to the creation of the earth. That's everything that we see. So when I look out, I look at the sky above, that's showing me everything. I see the majesty of the mountains. I see the oceans. I see the winds, I see the storms, the rolling thunder as uh, how great thou art expressed. It's the atmosphere, the clouds, the rain, the winds. And again, you see a word here, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And that same word proclaims is a present tense with a continuous force. In other um, translations, it's, it's a, a different word uh, which would be like is declaring. So you could read this verse as the sky above is declaring a skillful God, right? It's showing his handiwork, the skill with which he has crafted us and the creation that we exist in. As we read further, we read, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. This is a reference to the rhythms of creation. You know, I think of um, the music of the spheres is putting... Um, to emotional music, uh, the creation of God, the continuous motion that we see. You know, it's one thing to look around us and see pictures. I, one of the great experiences I had in seminary in worship was when a guy was, uh, had a bunch of Hubble telescope slides, and he was thumbing through these slides, and he would bring up a slide of some great nebula, the horsehead nebula, or the crab nebula, or the hourglass nebula, or the ant nebula, and all these different cool things that the Hubble telescope discovered. And as he was going through the slide deck, at the end of every slide, he would pause and say, you know, God didn't have to do that. God didn't have to do that. And it just impressed me with the enormity, the majesty, the heart of God in creation. And yet, those were still photos what you see moment by moment 
is God upholding creation. That it's not an inanimate picture, but it's fully animated, breathed life into by God. So when we read in verse 2, day-to-day pours out speech, is talking about the rhythms of creation. Day, night, seasons, years. And how design and order of creation, the rhythms, communicates about the intelligence of God. And a a really interesting word is used here. It says day-to-day pours out speech. That word pours out is uh, the word in Hebrew for uh, a bubbling spring where it's just bursting forth, um, gushing water from the ground, refreshing, alive. Day-to-day pours out speech, and night-to-night reveals knowledge. That revelation, that gushing out of speech is uncovering the nature of God. It's his heart in expression is what creation is. It's uncovering knowledge for us. So the rhythms of creation reveal intelligent design. You know, we put that word out there, intelligent design, is already in the song. Day-to-day pours out speech, and night-to-night reveals knowledge. We go on, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So, The rhythms of creation don't have words or a voice. Like, I'm speaking to you, I've got my kind of, you know, scratchy voice, and I have words that I've formed as I learned and grew, and and, uh, some of them are, you know, 25-cent words and things like that. But nonetheless, the rhythms of creation, they don't have those words. They don't have a voice, and yet they reveal the creator. And we see that this revelation is goes out to all the earth, to the end of the world. To the end of the world, the evidence of God and who he is is made known. It's universal. So a lot of times when we read this psalm, we look at the first six verses and we say, well, that's talking about general revelation, universal, everything that can be known about God uh, apart from his word. The revelation of God in creation is undeniable, we read. So as we read further, we, say, we read that in them, that is creation and the rhythms that are part of that, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So here David, the great poet and musician, in addition to being a king, is using language that he could understand, phenomenal language, to describe the world around him. And he's describing the rising sun. He says, in creation, God has put a tent for the sun. And we think of a tent as if you've, Um, been present in a a tent at any time. If you're outside the tent, you don't see it when something's inside the tent. But that does not mean that it's not there. So the the example he gives here is of a a wedding ceremony and the tent that would be part of that as part of that covenant that had 
that people would enter into and that the groom prepares himself in the tent. But when he's prepared, he bursts forth. And when he bursts forth, he's all about doing what his purpose is, right? And he's shining and he's vibrant. That's what it says here. It says, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. So when its cycle comes, it's like the bridegroom coming forth with brightness and like a strong man with vigor, power, and strength. But we also read, it's, it's rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. So this is part of the rhythms of creation. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. What does that mean? There's nothing hidden from its heat. You know, we, right now we're having beautiful weather, and I hope everybody could say amen to that. It's, it's been a wonderful July. It's been very, we see the sun. Even when we don't see the sun, we know it's there. Its impact is known, right? You can't deny that the sun is up there just because you can't see it. There is nothing hidden from its heat. You can't avoid the truth the truth of the sun, or the truth of anything, or deny its existence or purpose. The presence of the sun, that one small part of creation, that one rhythm that we understand and impacts us every day, right? As we have our cycles of the day and we wake up and we go to bed and we execute our lives, we live our lives in those rhythms. The persistence of the sun is evidence of God's creation. When we look about us, what we see is that the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Days, nights, and seasons, all the phenomena of nature are undeniable evidence of God's intelligent, purposeful design. God's beauty and perfection are revealed in creation and are inescapable evidence of his wisdom, power, and majesty. That word majesty, I was pondering on that as we were going through the, the songs as we led up to this time. And the majesty of God captures part of his beauty and complexity that puts us in awe. That's what majesty does. It brings you to a state of awe. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. This is a fundamental revelation about God. It's communicating to us. And I want you to know that it does not presume God's existence, as in Genesis 1.1. So go to the first page of the Bible, first chapter, first verse. It says, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. It presumes a creator, it presumes the presence and existence of God. This psalm does not. It says the creation itself is revealing the glory of God. The heavens are telling of a glorious God. It reveals him. So from this we get a foundational principle in our lives. God can be known through what he has created. Paul used this very principle, this truth, timeless truth, 
in his letter to the Romans when he was trying to um, make a case for the just judgments of God towards a sinful humanity. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, it says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God can be known through what he has created. We know that God, uh, in a general sense, can be known from creation, but he wants us to know him in a personal sense, person to person. Now, I reflect on this a lot. What is a person, right? We're all created as persons. And as a person, every person is unique. I don't care if you're an identical twin. The heart of a person is unique. And there's always some variation, even as God expresses each person in creation. Each of us is unique in all of God's creation. So right now, if you look across the world, um, there's about seven and a half billion people alive today. And they have, you go to the internet, they have a little clock that's ticking up showing you how the population is growing. It's a little over 7.5 billion. Um, there are studies that have been done to figure out, well, how many people have lived since the first man and woman, since Adam and Eve? And it's interesting because this is a secular study and they still take it back to two. And they do the math and they come up with about a 6.5% um, growth rate. And if you do the math, that comes out to be about one uh, 116 billion persons since the creation of humanity. Now, I know that sounds like a big number, 116 billion, but when you look at the sands on the seashore, they far outnumber 116 billion. When you look at the stars in the sky, it far outnumbers 116 billion, and each one is unique. No two are the same. Each person created by God has importance and value uniquely to him and he gives you a name. Right? When God calls your name, you know. Just like when my mom would call my name, I would know. Usually I was in trouble. So that uniqueness of who we are is expressed um, through God's word. He's revealing himself to us in his word. And he describes, this is described in six different ways. So as we read the next three verses, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. I want you to note there's a change here in the name of God. It changes from a general name of God, which you see in the first six verses, and it's usually translated God. It's El. It's uh, not generic, but it's a general name of God. When you're talking about him... Um, 
less personally. But you see a change here to the personal name of God. So when you see in your Bible, um, all caps, which is what it says here, um, the law of the Lord, all caps, is perfect. It's that personal name of God, which if we put vowel pointing to, um, we pronounce as Yahweh. Or if you're German, it might be Jehovah. Right? Same consonants, um, different way of pronouncing it based upon linguistic differences. So you see a name change, and it says that God is revealed in his perfect law, which revives the soul. What's the law? The law is, uh, in this case, it's a technical term, which means the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. The Torah, many times people think of law as like a set of, of do's, and don'ts, and you got to hit the check boxes as you're going through the law. In other words, it would be prescriptive as to how you're supposed to live. But the Torah is not prescriptive, but it's descriptive of life in God's kingdom, what it looks like if you live in God's kingdom. It describes what communion with him is intended to be. That's the Torah, the law. And we see the word here, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect. This word perfect means complete, whole, or sound, right? Um, so when we, we look at that word, uh, it means that the law, what that relationship with God looks like, communion with him, has everything that is needed. And further, it's reviving the soul, which refers to the Lord's restorative, life-giving, healing work of redemption. It's about making us whole. Not only is it whole, but it makes us whole. We read on that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony of the Lord refers to God's covenant with his people. So if you did a word study, you would find out and you, you know, tag this word and you find out where all it occurs in the Bible. You see a whole bunch of occurrences in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy because it's referring to the covenant that was um, more clearly um, captured by Moses. That covenant goes all the way back to Adam and Noah and Abraham. And we think about that covenant with Abraham and there are three aspects to it. The covenant with Abraham has to do with that God will have a people, his people, in his place with his presence or blessing on those people. Three things. And that that covenant is uh, a promise to his people. That God is a promise keeper. And that the aspects, if you start study covenant, um, you find out that there are binding parts of this that, that capture God not capture, but um, in the sense that um, he is going to keep his word. So he will have his people, and they will live in his kingdom, and he will be the center of that. He will be the blessing for all of his creation. And so this testimony is referring to God's covenant with his people, and it says that this testimony is sure or firm, and uh, when uh, Psalm 19 was read earlier, it, um, Lisa used the word trustworthy in her translation of the Bible. That means that it's like a good foothold when you're on a trail. So think of yourself on a, on a trail, wet or dry, it doesn't matter. 
it would be easy to slip in the scree or into the mud, but it's a sure foothold. You're not going to slip. You're on firm ground. So the testimony is sure. And it says the simple can be made wise by it. The word simple here doesn't mean people that lack uh, cognitive capacity. It's not about intelligence. Rather, a better interpretation of that word would be open-minded. So it's saying that God is revealed in his testimony, that is his covenant, which makes open-minded people wise by giving them a firm foothold. As we continue on, we read, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. God is revealed in his righteous precepts. What's a precept? Precept is, is uh, instruction. It can be general instruction or it can be specific instruction, but it's instruction, which it says here rejoices the heart. So God is revealed in his righteous precepts, which bring gladness or joy to the inner person. So we're all uh, both material, flesh and blood, and immaterial. We have a soul, we have a spirit, we have a mind, we have a will. Call that the heart. The heart, the seat of a person. We read on, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. God is revealed in his pure commandment. What's a commandment? I used to give those to my kids, right? Do this. It's a rule to be obeyed. And uh, oftentimes I would get pushback. Um, and we think of the Ten Commandments as a rule to be obeyed. I would say they're more descriptive. If you were actually in communion with God, it wouldn't be a prescription. But what we understand is that there is um, commandments of the Lord and that they're pure. And they actually enlighten the eyes. So the eyes are how we take in the world. It's how our perceptions are formed. So God is revealed in pure commandment, rules to be obeyed, which bring enlightenment, an enlightened perception or awareness. We read on that the fear of the Lord is clean, endureth forever. What is the fear of the Lord? Think about the fear of the Lord. When, when somebody says to you, the fear of the Lord, and we actually saw it uh, on the screen as we were reading through, uh, if you were singing along, um, the fear of the Lord was actually up there. You may not have recognized it. When most people think of fear, they think it's something to be avoided, right? That you might have a great respect for. So I'm an electrical engineer. I work in high-voltage transmission systems. I can tell you I have a fear of electricity and bare conductors that are energized. When I go into a substation, I'm going to be going into Celilo this next week, which is 1,000 um, thousand kilovolts, so it's a million volts, DC in those conversion stations, it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up, right? I'm fearful of that. Doesn't mean that I can't work in that area, but I'm going to always have a stand back thing. So a lot of times when we talk about the fear of the Lord, we use that idea of respect or awe as if it's something to be avoided. But actually, a better understanding of the fear of the Lord is submission to God's will. You know what submission is? Submission's different than oppression. Oppression is when you're forced to do something. Submission is when, by your own will, by your choice, 
You choose to place yourself under the authority of another. You choose to do their will. So when it talks about the fear of the Lord is clean, it's talking about submission to God's will. Knowing who God is and who you are allows you to submit to his sovereignty. He is the true king. The verse that we just had up there on how great thou art, it says, when Christ shall come with shouts of adulation, and it talks about us, that he's come for us, it says, I will bow down with humble admiration. That is the fear of God. It's not where you're trying to avoid him, but you're drawing near knowing who he is and knowing who you are and submitting to his authority as the true king, submitting to his will. Further, it says that the submission, this fear of the Lord, is the foundation of an eternal relationship. Right? It says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. God is revealed in the fear of the Lord as the true king. This isn't just a casual comment. This is a revelation that helps us to know who God is. As we read on, it says, The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. God is revealed in his true and righteous decrees. So in the ESV, it uses the word rules. In other translations, it might use ordinance or decree. And I think ordinance or decree is a little bit more accurate. Because what a decree is, it's like when God spoke creation into existence. He decreed it would be thus. And part of thus is like the natural laws, the law of gravity. I don't care who you are, you cannot defy the laws of gravity. Because it's a decree of God. He made it so. It is the rule. That's the way that the universe works. It says, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. You can't separate truth and righteousness in God's decree. So God's person, his integrity, character, and will are perfectly expressed in his word. We get another principle, just like we had a principle, a timeless truth, that God can be known in creation. We have another one here. God can be known personally through his revealed word. What is his revealed word? Right here, folks. This is the special revelation of God that's been preserved for us. So we can know God through what he's created, and we can personally know him through his word. But the goal of creation, or the goal of revelation, excuse me, is the internalization of God's word in the heart of a person so as to transform their way of life. Knowledge is good, but knowledge that doesn't change you is not helpful. I'll, I'll again go back to my example of fear of uh, electricity. You know, that fear of electricity actually changed the way that I operate. I avoid um, things that might give me a shock or lead to my death, right? Um, that's a natural thing to do, that knowledge should transform you. But 
in this case, knowledge shouldn't transform you in a negative way. It should transform you in a positive way. We read on in verse 10, it says, more to be desired are they than gold. What is they? It's talking about the words of God. Um, Even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, than drippings of the honeycomb. Right? So, We read here that God's word, his law, testimony, precepts, commandments, the fear of the law, understanding who the true king is, is immeasurably valuable. It's more desirable than the greatest wealth, gold or lots of it, the purest gold, or the finest food. You got to think about David now. He's uh, a desert desert kid. He would be out in the hills, um, out of Judea, raising sheep, and he would understand what a honeycomb and the, and, and the finest food is that honeycomb, right? And that's the language that he's using to tell us that this word of God is more desirable than that. It's greater than power or security or material comforts that this world can offer. We read on that it says, Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Now, I love this word warned because this word warned is in, uh, in Hebrew, it's the word shamar, which doesn't mean anything to you all, but it means something to me because when I come across it, I pay attention. What it is, it's a word that describes um, to be kept, to be protected, to be guarded. This is the word that's foundational in the 121st Psalm. If you love that psalm, the reason why is because of this word. It's talking about that God's word guards and protects us. And better yet, in keeping it, there is great reward. So here we find two promises, two great promises of God in his word. And every time I get to a promise, I underline it. Because I know the promise keeper is good. He's going to keep his promise. And this is the promise. First promise, we can trust God for protection. The second promise is that in keeping God's words, it leads to rewards of life, wisdom, joy, and understanding. If I unpack 7 through 9, that's what I see. Life, wisdom, joy, and understanding. Two promises that we can bank on. Now we see the inward turn as David responds to God's revelation. So you see a little bit of a shift as the psalm progresses. We read, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. So David is asking for forgiveness for hidden sins. That's pretty profound for a young man. He, that which he doesn't know or he does in ignorance... You know, in our culture, the way I hear that is you don't know what you don't know. And the first time I heard that, it just kind of rolled off my back. And I started thinking about it. Well, of course you don't know what you don't know. You can't know what you don't know, right? Well, David is saying, you know, God's got me protected. He's got me covered. He's, I need forgiveness for even that that I unintentionally do or I do in ignorance. So he's asking forgiveness for his sins. And then as we read on, he says, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. 
Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. What's a presumptuous sin? Nobody in here has done that, I know. But uh, presumptuous sin is sin that is willful. It's committed with full awareness and intent. And I know that nobody's done that. We only need to ask for forgiveness for things we don't know about, right? No, we have a rebellious nature. If you don't believe that, look at a little kid. There's a rebellious nature there in all of us. And that that develops, that, that twist of the corruption of sin develops in us. Ultimately, we are totally depraved. And David petitions God to keep him from that rebellious nature, that twisting of total corruption. And he goes on, he says, you know, I understand this personally because I understand that it can have dominion over me. Sin will own us when it gets a foothold in our lives. That's what Pastor Bob was sharing as we moved through the Ephesian letter um, about spiritual warfare. We need to be aware of this, that sin will take you captive. It will own you. It will corrupt you. But God delivers us from the penalty and bondage of willful sin. We see that in this confidence in David. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. God's protection, his guarding of us, his redemptive work in order to deliver us from sin is what gives him this confidence. Finally, we see an answer to the question, how now shall we live? Given the revelation of God in his work and in his word, we read, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David asks for God's transformation of his heart. His actions and his intentions, the words of his mouth and the meditations of his heart. So when you think about the words of our mouth, we clearly understand we've been warned about the, the, uh, the, how quick the tongue can run and we need to be on guard. The tongue is just the immediate action that happens as a result of the intentions of our heart. The way that we live in the world is a result of the meditations of our heart. And what he's saying here is, let the words of my mouth, my actions, and the meditations of my heart, my intentions, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. He trusts God to transform him to be acceptable. What do we call that transformation in Christianese? A transformation of the heart, like Ezekiel described, when he says that God will take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. That under the new covenant, we are born again. He's talking about the action of God to transform us, to make him acceptable in his sight. Because the command of God is, be holy for I am holy. And yet here we find ourselves with unintentional sin and worse yet, willful rebellion against God. And so what do we need? We need the transformation. That's what David is asking for. But he trusts God in that. He says, God is reliable. He's his rock. And he's trustworthy. 
He's his redeemer. This psalm ends with a personal plea for acceptance through transformation. This happens by knowing the God of forgiveness and new life. We need to ask God for transformation of our heart, our actions, and our intentions. This is confession. That's what David's doing. And you see David confess all over the place as you read through the Psalms. He may do it very poetically, very eloquently, but you see the confession, the cry of the heart to God in his revelation. He understands who God is. He has the fear of the Lord. He is submitting to his will. And he's saying, transform me. Let me be born again. We need to be transformed by our God. We need to have that that born again experience. We need to be reliant on our God. He is our rock. We need to trust our God. He is our redeemer. So what do we learn? What's the principle? Well, we can trust God for forgiveness and deliverance. We can take that to the bank. What can we take away from this? What would be the application point, as a preacher might say? Well, we should live our lives striving to know God personally, trusting his promises and trusting him to transform us to be acceptable in his sight. So how now shall we live? Well, we must trust and stand firm in God's revelation. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that uh, you've preserved your word that we can come to it and learn from you. And this is both a beautifully written psalm and powerfully instructive psalm, but beyond the beauty of the, the language and the literature, um, we need to be transformed by your word. We can know you through your creation. We desire to know you personally through your word. And you're speaking to us this morning, Lord. Lord, transform us. If there are those here that that is like, well, yeah, I've been transformed, but I need to renew my life, Lord, let them, let them confess. Let them speak up. Because if we confess with our mouth, you are righteous and just and will forgive us and transform us. Lord, we ask for that this morning. We ask for that trans- transformation in our lives. We ask that the words of our mouth, the words, the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, we thank you for this. In our Lord, Lord's name, Lord Jesus, amen.